I'm not preaching from a particular scripture today. We're going to be a little bit more all over the place. Um, Today is Reformation Sunday, uh, which turns out to be a great follow-up to our discussion last week about the history of our church, because on this day we celebrate what the Reformers did for the faith, and that is really our faith heritage. And so today we're going to talk about some of the beliefs, not so much the history, but more about the beliefs that the Reformers brought forth for us and that are really part of our church to this day. To understand the Reformation, you do have to understand a little bit the context of what's going on in Europe at the time. It's the start of the Enlightenment. Um, there are these, there's this group of people that are they're calling themselves humanists, which is not the way we would use that term in philosophy today, but they were, they were going back to the humanities, going back to the original reading, uh, the original documents, the original writing of culture, whereas it had only been really medieval writings, and many people couldn't read or write in the time. There was a, a newfound interest in education and in going back. The church was in a state where it very much needed this. There was a lot of corruption in the church, there was a, uh, a lot of political maneuvering, so priests and bishops would be assigned based on political allies, the children of someone important or someone wealthy who didn't even always have training. Remember that the printing press is being invented right at the start of the Reformation, so, so most people don't, you can't print books. All books have to be handwritten, so very few people have copies of the Bible or any other book for that matter. Very few people can read those things, and that included priests. Most priests didn't have a Bible. They couldn't read a Bible. They were taught the interpretations of the Bible from whoever they learned from. The worship service was done almost exclusively in Latin, which means nobody in the pews knew what anybody was talking about, let alone most of the priests. Many of the priests could pronounce all the words, they could say it right, but they did not understand what they were even saying. This led to some bad theology and bad beliefs. The idea of indulgences, where you could could see something and pay your money and get, get a piece of paper that would let you out of purgatory after your life. You could do that for other people as well. So much of the the scheming of the day was political as the structures of the day uh, weren't working anymore. Uh, We don't think about this, but not only is there a religious reformation, but this is really the beginning of the end of feudalism. The whole political climate of Europe is going to change over the same time period. And the worst part was that the church of of the day was doing something horrible to God's reputation. God became a judge And you had to worry about where you stood with this judge. They would scare you into buying indulgences to be sure that you and your relatives would be secure after your life. This portrayal of God was much different than previous generations. A scary God that you had to watch out for. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to be anti-Catholic. In fact, there's really no comparison between the Catholic Church today and the Catholic Church back then. But, uh, but the church at the time, there wasn't other options. It was just the church. And it was really in a pretty unhealthy state. The stage was set, the wood was piled up, and all that the Reformation needed was a spark. And Martin Luther provided that spark. 
One day when he was reading in, in the book of Romans, um, Martin Luther was a person lucky enough to get assigned to learn theology and to read the Bible. And so instead of being fearful of God, he started to open the scriptures and understand God differently, particularly in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for example. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther used to always be bothered by this. Man, if God is so righteous, and I know that I am so not righteous, then I've got so far to go to get right, to be called righteous, I'll never make it. And so Luther found himself depressed most of the time. But what he figured out as he studied the scripture was that wasn't how it really worked. That I'm not righteous because I do good things. I'm righteous because God calls me righteous. He started to rethink the faith and the people that followed him did the same. You can go ahead and flip the slide. That's Martin Luther on the top. And then these other two gentlemen with very inspiring beards are John Calvin and John Knox. John Calvin would take on the mantle of leading the Reformation over in Geneva and uh, would build sort of the theology that Luther hadn't developed in as much detail. John Knox would be a student of Calvin and then eventually go to Scotland and would start the Scottish, be a strong leader in the Scottish Reformation from which Presbyterianism comes. If I, scholars have tried to isolate what are the important points of Reformed faith and we've come up with these five things. They're called the five solas. Um, sola means only or alone, uh, which basically means they didn't understand what the word sola meant because if there's five of them, they're not really alone. But these five, though Luther and Calvin never quite used them the same way, Luther used two of them. Um, but these five really do sort of capture what it means to be a part of the Reformed faith and the Reformed tradition. Sola Scriptura. The idea here is that the authority structure doesn't come ultimately from people. It ultimately comes from the Scriptures. Not the interpretations of the Scriptures, but the Scriptures themselves. From 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Scripture itself is claimed to be good for teaching, correction, discipline, and training. And so it ought to be primary. And anybody's interpretation or teaching about said scripture ought to be secondary. Listen to this critique that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 7. Talking to a bunch of the Pharisees. And he said to them... You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must, be put, must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you, are no, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. Listen to that indictment. Making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. That was the critique of the reformers. Not that tradition should be thrown out. Tradition for the reformers is still important. 
but it's secondary. It's a support structure for ultimately a belief system based on the word of God. Jesus is not anti-tradition, but he wants scripture to be primary. And so as Luther looked at these scriptures and as Calvin and others did, they found that the faith looked very different. Solo gratia, that was one of the solas that Luther actually did use. This means grace alone. Only by grace is the faith made. For by grace you have been saved through faith, says Ephesians 2. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one may boast. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Not just that God forgives you. No, God actively loves and favors you. And not that you earn it. It is 100% a gift without exception. Paul goes so far as to say this. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Think about it this way. Have you ever given someone a gift? And then they try to give you money for that gift? Has this ever happened to anybody? You buy somebody something and they say, well, let me give you $20 for that. Well, if they're going to give you $20 for it, it's not a gift anymore, is it? It's a transaction. Grace is not a transaction. God's grace for you is not a transaction. You are never going to earn it. You never did earn it. You never will earn it. God's grace for you, His favor, His love for you is unearnable. In fact, you deserve the opposite of God's grace. It's totally a gift that you will never pay back. It's not a transaction. If it's not works, if it's not something that we can earn, then how does it become ours? All we can simply do is accept the gift. And the word that they used in the Reformation for that is the biblical word. Faith. Sola fide, this is the other way, that, the other one that, you, that Luther actually used. Faith alone. Romans 3 says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Now what does faith mean? We tend to use the word faith as just sort of believing, but that's not true. That's not what faith is. Faith really means confidence or trust. I can believe in something without trusting it. I'm not just trusting it to be true. Faith involves actually trusting it. It's not faith until you're actually leaning on it where you're going to fall if it's not true. That is saving faith. Believing so much in the grace of God through Jesus Christ that I begin to live my life Leaning on the everlasting arms. It requires a response. Yes, at some point you have to make a response. But not in order to earn God's love. It is a response of gratitude. This is a huge point for us. The Christian faith is not about going to church or being good enough for God. When you stand before God someday and have to answer for your faith, Saying that you are a member of Westminster Church is not going to get you anywhere. But God, I used to make apple dumplings. And I was a greeter. I parked cars on Friday nights and I went to Bible study sometimes. No, none of those things are going to matter before God. 
Matthew 7 says it strongly. Jesus talks about people coming before God and saying, didn't I do all this great stuff? I prophesied. I did all this churchy stuff for you in this world. But God dismisses them and says, I never knew you. This faith stuff is something you have to make yours. Sometimes you've got to lean into it. You never earn it. But you have to lean into it. It's not based on your work. It has to be based on Christ. Now all this tradition, you know what it's meant to do? The church stuff that we do. It's meant to support this faith. It's meant to help hold it up. It's meant to be here so that you can come into this sanctuary and sing the hymns sometime when you don't feel like it. And we hold each other up. That's the purpose of the faith. But, but the faith is the important thing that tradition supports. And it only is yours because of Christ. Solo Christo. Christ alone. Not your works. Not the works of the church. We, we could go all over the place in scripture for this. Let me give you a couple. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. How about John 14? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there was no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. This only becomes yours because of the saving life, death, death resurrection and continued ministry of Jesus Christ. The church doesn't get to dispense this. Pastors and priests can't hand this to you. This is not a, there's not a checklist of what you have to do to get there. It's only found in Christ. In fact, the reformers thought this so strongly that they said the only way you come to Christ is if Christ calls you. People get hung up on this and I don't think that the reformers meant it to be as strong a part of the theology as it was. But, but we talk about a thing called predestination. The idea that, that you are so sinful and we're so addicted to sin that we would never of our own accord choose God. God has to call us to Him. Calvin did not want this to be a major thrust of his theology. He, he wrote about it in some of his letters, in some of his commentaries, in some of his... his uh, what would be more kind of upper level, more theological works. But he ended up having to argue about it with a bunch of people, and so it became a really important part of our theology and our background. The idea isn't that you don't have free will. The idea is that your free will is corrupted, so you can't choose God. Just like today, if I said to you, you know, do you have free will? Can you choose what you do with your life? You would say yes. And then if I said, well, then go have lunch in Paris today. Well, you can't do that, right? You could have if you flew to Paris yesterday. Which for most of us meant you would have had to have saved up for a few months to fly to Paris yesterday. Also, by the way, lunch has already happened in Paris. See, it's not that you don't have free will, but your previous decisions sometimes limit what you can do. And the reformers used to have this understanding that that your previous decisions towards sin made it so that you can't choose God, but God chose you. Do you have to make a decision? Yes, but it often comes after God sort of woos you or calls you. In fact, if I could could get testimonies from a bunch of people in this church about when they really made the faith their own or received Christ, you know what we would find? We'd find a bunch of life circumstances that led to that decision. 
Most people don't just sit up on their couch on a Thursday evening and say, I need Jesus. Most people have all kinds of life circumstances that lead them to a point they need to make a decision. And the reformers said, that's God calling you. That's God calling you. Now, whatever degree you want to agree, agree with that or disagree with that, the, the, the bigger point is that it's only through Christ that any of this is possible. And so why? Why does God go through all of this? Solio Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. The question is, why does God do all this? The answer is so that God gets glory. So that you and I would be claimed by God to proclaim God and praise God the rest of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21 According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You are saved to give God glory. That's not just a Sunday morning thing. That means when you go to work tomorrow, you are there to give God glory. When you're with your family at dinner time, you are there to give God glory. You are saved for that purpose. You just became, as a Christian, a human spotlight. Constantly pointing towards Jesus and saying to others around you, look at Jesus. Look at him there. Look what he did for me. Look what he did for you. Look at him at work in our community and in our lives. We don't give glory to pastors, to priests, to popes or TV preachers. Not to books or musicians or ideas. All the praise goes to God. In fact, the reformers believe so strongly in this that they would talk about the believers with this interesting phrase. They would talk about the priesthood of all believers. came from this amazing verse in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reformers still had a higher view of pastors and priests, but but the function was different. Jesus was the ultimate high priest and the ultimate sacrifice, which meant that the the role of the pastor as the go-between of God and the people was not the same. Every one of us has access to God. Any one of us can praise God and petition God at any time. We are all priests doing this work. We are all saved by grace, myself included. We are all granted this salvation through faith. And it can only be ours because of Christ. The scripture is the unique and authoritative way that we know all this. And that is why the the reformers worked so hard to translate the scriptures into languages that people could understand. Martin started this. Martin Luther started this. Eventually we get the King James Bible. And They wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible to find out that the faith of God judging us isn't the faith of the Bible. Whenever I read the Reformers, I am struck by their robust and grace-oriented faith, emphasizing the love of God. This led Christians to form communities of learning and support and changed the course of human history. This is our faith heritage. When we call ourselves a Presbyterian church, we claim to be part of this tradition. May we live into that. May it challenge us to know Christ and to share Christ and to glorify Christ at a deeper level. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the reformers, for their work, for their challenges for us, for the robustness of their faith. Lord, don't let us walk through life with a light faith, with an unimportant faith, but let it be a faith that really leans on you, that trusts in your grace and that doesn't try to earn it, but instead tries to turn all glory to you. Help us to be people of the book, people who read the scriptures, who follow the scriptures, and who seek to understand them as a way of life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.